Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young boy in Texas? Dallas Cowboys. My dad was a big Dallas Cowboys fan. I had Dallas Cowboys pajamas. I had a Dallas Cowboys helmet which my dad used to make me wear around the house because I would be running everywhere and I'd bang myself <laughs> in the head and have a big knot. So my dad starts telling me, put the helmet on. Yeah, I just, I, I, I remember the Dallas Cowboys as a brand, not me, obviously as a team, but I remember just seeing that. I knew what it meant. And you would see it across, around Dallas on, you know, billboards and different businesses that were sponsors of mm-hmm. the Cowboys. You would see it everywhere. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Creative. It's what all individuals, teams, and companies strive to be. But in all aspects of business, there are certain rules to follow or reputations to uphold. So how do you maximize creativity within these boundaries? Our mini-series, Creative Collisions, explores just that. We'll dive into how companies, brands, and leaders handle those push-pull moments, why it's so important to have those conversations, and what lessons were learned along the way. On this final episode of our Creative Collisions mini-series, we have the one and only Michael Dwayne Johnson, one of the greatest sprinters of all time, one of the greatest athletes of all time. Remember the gold Nike running shoes? Remember the 1996 Atlanta Olympics? Well, in Atlanta, Michael won gold in his home country in both the 200-meter and 400-meter events, a record to this day that is unrivaled. In total, Michael Johnson won four Olympic gold medals and eight world championship gold medals. And in one incredible stretch, he won 58 consecutive 400-meter races. Since retiring from world-class competition in 2001, Michael has had a diverse portfolio of activities. This has included being a very active commentator for the BBC, an entrepreneur. In 2007, Michael founded Michael Johnson Performance, a training facility for promising young athletes and professionals, and he has produced a documentary and a podcast series. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, including how to get to the top of your field, and even harder, how to stay there. Here's my conversation with a guy from Dallas, the youngest of five kids, a Cowboys fan, and yes, one of the greatest athletes of all time. Here's Michael Johnson. Michael, welcome to the CMO Podcast. It's a great honor, I have to say. When you were breaking all those records, my family and I were in Prague, and I was one of the first groups sent over after the wall came down. It was the mid-90s. My kids were six and eight. And we watched the Atlanta Olympics from Prague, and you gave us a lot of excitement and pride. Ah, thank you. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. Great memories. Yeah, yeah. Prague's a great city. It is a great city. We loved it. Yeah. How long were you there? We were there two years, which it had been longer, but the company called and said, we need you to go to Frankfurt. But it was really dynamic. Yeah, yeah. You know, something different every day, which I loved. And I loved having a local organization that was learning a new system. A new economic system, right, yeah. a new company system. And my boss at PNG at the time said to me, I love this. This is a good thing about that company. I was there 25 years. But he said to me when I went over, he said, your job isn't to grow share and make a lot of money. Yeah, you're going to do that. That's table stakes. 
Your job is to influence how that country does business for the future. Yeah. He said, we got to do it with ethics, no bribes, right. transparency, you know, and so that, you know, wow. Yeah. That's a brief. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It's interesting. I think it was 2003. I went over there with PNG to do a speaking engagement. No kidding. To Prague. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. You were gone then. I was long gone. Yeah. yeah. I was CMO yeah. at the time. Yeah. I was the head of marketing yeah. at okay. the time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Good experience? Yeah. It was great. It's great. Yeah, that was my second time in Prague. I'd been there before. Yeah, I uh, competed there in 2000. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Nike was trying to, you know, also all brands were, you know, sort of going back in at that point. So they were doing some stuff there, and I was helping them out with something. So went there and competed. Yeah. Now you're in Cannes Lions today. Is this your first time at the festival? It is. It is. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a so lot. what do you think? It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's full on. But no, it's great, you know, just a lot of interesting conversations and, you know, meeting people. And so, yeah, but it's, it is a lot. Yeah, it is yeah. a lot. So you've just been at Sport Beach, I understand, before yeah. this. You're on a panel there, right? What'd you talk about in Sport Beach? Which, by the way, I think it's wonderful. It's the first time we've done that this year, having yeah, a Sport Beach. interesting conversation about sort of the transition from athlete to business, mm -hmm. athlete to post-athlete career. So... Sue Bird was was on the panel. She just retired last year, yeah, and sure. WNBA legend. So she's sort of new to the retirement, you know, transition game. I'm 23 years in, so it's an interesting conversation. I think you know it's often been a a topic of you know great interest for people how athletes transition to their post sport and athletic career life because it's one of the only careers where, you know, it's an amazing career. Not a lot of people get to do it, but you can't do it forever. You're going to retire at a very early age with a lot of living left to do. For that reason, also, you know, traditionally, athletes have struggled with it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're sort of full on when you're an athlete and you don't really, you know, many athletes, I wasn't this way, but many athletes just don't think about anything else. You, you know, you don't have a lot of capacity, actually, to really focus on anything else. But I think that... Uh, Athletes have sort of learned that lesson, and, and this generation of athletes now, you know, I'm sort of envious of their ability mm -hmm. to start building a brand and controlling their own narrative and all of those sorts of things before they actually retire. Yeah. I was, before coming over here this morning, I was watching CNBC in my hotel room. Chris Paul was on Squawk Box talking about his eight partnerships, his business, his brand, his view of it, where it's going. Very tight, very inspiring you know, fab, fabulous strategy. Uh, I've had Paul Rivera on this show, who's LeBron James's CMO at Spring Hill, talking about how they formed the company, where that's going. I mean, it is, it's wonderful to see. It really is. Yeah, it is. And I think that, you know, guys like LeBron and, and Chris as well, Chris Paul and others are sort of showing the way for new athletes and young athletes that, you know, you start before you're you're done. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, the, the, the cautionary tales were, you know, athletes who had, you know, finished their careers and invested poorly and someone took advantage of them. But I think then, you know, along came Magic Johnson, you know, and athletes started to see a true role model in terms of someone that was able to take that brand that they had created as an athlete and really get into, you know, some significant business opportunities and learning business and understanding how to invest and how to embed themselves into the business community. You've been out of competition, what, 23 years? Yeah. So could you talk about that transition for you and going from world-class athlete top of the game to to a new life and what you've learned along the way uh, what you think you've done well what could others learn from what you may not have done as well as you'd like yeah so when I was at Baylor University I was a business major I was marketing got my degree in marketing never really knew if I was going to ultimately go on to be an athlete or not you know, when I was my four years there, I was very intrigued with business, very intrigued with uh, entrepreneurship. So when I was fortunate to actually yeah, establish a professional and Olympic uh, career that lasted for you know, 11 years, you know, I was I always wanted to get back to that. Mm -hmm. I always sort of knew that that's where I'm going to go. That's what I'm going to do when I'm finished. And I was very fortunate during my athletic career to to accomplish all of the goals that I set for myself during the career. So when I retired, it was because I was 
ready to move on. I had done all of the things that I wanted to do in the sport. I knew that I was driven by my goals and I ran out of goals. There were no more. So I was like, you know, I could keep going. Got some good contracts here that, you know, can keep me going for, but I'll probably start losing, you know, because I'm just not as driven. I'm not going to be as driven. And, um, and I wanted to finish my career with a clean sheet of only gold medals. And, um, and I was able to do that. So, so I had already started thinking before I retired of what, I'm, what do I want to do next. And I was really excited when I decided to retire when that time came. I was excited about what was next. But you'd ask me when I was competing, would I end up as a television commentator? I would have said no. Hmm. Not something that was, I would even, I'd even thought about. But ended up there, and um, yeah, I really liked it and ended up being pretty good at it. And then, you know, as an athlete, for so long, waking up every morning with one thing in mind, run faster. You know, one pretty singular focus for so long, I was really sort of, you know, um, thinking as I transitioned into retirement, I want to be, you know, I want a new challenge every day. So I ended up uh, working for BBC because I didn't have to be, a, you know, a, just a broadcaster. Had I, I'd worked for ESPN a little bit when I first retired and and I, I kind of got the message that, you know, if you want to be in this business, it has to be only this and it's got to be full on. So BBC allowed me a platform where I was able to work on assignments that I wanted. I was able to get outside of just track and field, able to expand it even outside of just sports, which was intriguing to me doing documentaries and things like that. But also just the projects that I wanted so that I could actually then fulfill that sort of entrepreneurial bug that I had. And, and um, so... So yeah, it was for for years. It was a little bit of something different every day with all of the various things that I was doing. You know, I was able to take a lot of what I learned as an athlete of how to get the best for myself and and apply those things to to being a television commentator, to being a, a an entrepreneur as well. And I think that you know that I did that pretty well. The things that you know I struggled with early, but I was able to figure out was how to lead and build teams as an individual athlete. Mm-hmm. That that's that's a challenge yep. <laughs> when you're only you know relying on yourself and having a tremendous amount of success working by yourself. And and you know that was that was a bit of a challenge. But I figured it out how to build teams and lead teams, and um, and that was very rewarding actually to be able to figure that out and see our company just uh, um, uh, succeed and grow as a result. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. How did you figure out how to build great teams? Did you do it by gut or did you talk to people you admired? Uh, I studied other people, but I also, you know, for the most part, just sort of out of necessity, just kind of had to figure out, all right, these are great people. Mm-hmm. They're on the team. They're working for me. They're working for the organization. They want the best, and they're great people. My job is to lead them and to build these teams. It has to be done. How do I do it? And so just like with everything else that I've ever done, you know, I figured it out you know, through a, some trial and error, researching other people, doing a lot of research and reading and studying others, and just kind of using every resource at my disposal. But what I figured out, you know, ultimately was my job is not to sort of show them, well, this is how I do it and this is how you do it, because I had benefited from figuring out, you know, how to get the best from myself individually as a person. And um, so my job is to help them figure out how to get the best from themselves. You may not work the way that I work. Mm-hmm. Um, and working the way that I work may not actually be best for you. Yeah. But let me help you figure out how you work best. So what I can share with you is how I did it, how I figured out how do I get the best for myself. So I can share that with you, and then you're on, off to the races on your own with that. Yeah, yeah. So you when you're, you're doing commentating, which I followed, 
and the podcast and the documentary and entrepreneurship. So how did you decide or where you wanted to focus in terms of business and entrepreneurship? Yeah, so sports was, has always been a big part of what I do. Sure. Um, I saw a void with, and this is back in the sort of early 2000s, where athletes were not reaching their potential. They could get really good, but not fully reaching their potential. I had the opportunity to reach my full potential as an athlete because I had a great team of coaches, track coach, strength coach, physical therapist. It's a fantastic team of people that worked together to help me get to every championship, healthy, ready to go, and at my best. So, you know, when an athlete doesn't have that, then you end up not in the situation that I was where I was able to then do all of the things I wanted to do, accomplish all of the goals, and then retire and be happy and never have to look back and wonder what could have been. And um, so my goal, and, and I saw a void there that not every athlete gets that opportunity. Uh, so I created Michael Johnson Performance, brought together a collection of uh, sports scientists and great coaches who all sort of also understood that when you are a coach, you are a practitioner in that space, a nutritionist, a mental skills coach, working with athletes, your job is to support the athlete. It's not about you. It's not about your philosophy. And what had happened was there were a lot of coaches that were becoming gurus and people would block to that guru thinking, well, if he rubs some of his knowledge on me, you know, then I'm going to reach my full potential. But what happens is, is then the athlete has to go there and adapt who they are as an athlete and all of the things that, you know, may make them great to the style of this coach. So, it kind of made for a little bit of low-hanging fruit to go in sure. and a low bar yeah. to go in and, and create a, a, um, a collection of uh, sports uh, specialists to support athletes and teams. And um, so that was, that was, that's kind of how I got into that business. It was out of you know, a, a, a void that I saw, but also a desire to help other athletes you know, have the same opportunity yeah. I had. You're still enjoying it? I am. So I was able to transition the business to where we were no longer training athletes in person. And, and the most, uh, the best part of our business was, I mean, that's the best part on a day-to-day -day basis, yeah. just being there, you know, having that coaches, you know, sort of put their hands on the athlete and help them, you know, and, but, you know, we were able to transition our business into more of a licensed business where we license all of the programming. We consult with sports teams and helping them develop their own programming. When I first started, it was very enjoyable leading the team, trying to build this thing, trying to push this rock up the hill. And then 15 years later, just before COVID, it got to a point where I, was, I wasn't as happy mm -hmm. anymore, you know, because for me, I wasn't really wanting to be in the grind anymore like that. And, um, and I had been trying to transition the business to where it is now and was finally able to get it, get, get it there. So I went through a period there, maybe a couple of years. These were, this was a kind of last year before COVID and first year of COVID, which was really tough. But it did help us excel, help me sort of accelerate um, that, that, that transition. So I'm happy again now. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. It, you mentioned you were, you know, you're a great commentator. It wasn't a skill you were trained in, right? You didn't go to journalism school or any of that sort of stuff. But you got quite good at it. So tell us that story. How did, did, did that happen organically? Did you just learn by doing? I mean, I never thought I'd be a podcast host. I I listened to a bunch of podcasts I enjoyed. I went with my gut, tried to get people to tell their human story, and I enjoy it. And it, we have a pretty good show here. But how did how did it go for you? Yeah, I think it's the same. I think, you know, I think when you have that combination, it sounds very similar to my story. You know, I, yeah, not trained as, in journalism. I had a passion for helping the viewer understand better what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. And I had a, I had a passion for that, to try to help make that viewing experience for them when they're watching. Initially, it started out with, yeah, just, you know, me commentating live sport events, Olympics, world championships of track and field, but helping them understand what this athlete is experiencing, helping them understand and sort of decipher through, you know, what the commentators, the, the, the sort of race commentators, the uh, color commentators, what they're saying and what the athlete's saying in the post, 
you know, event re- interview, which can be a little bit closed, you know, so it leaves the viewer wondering. Mm-hmm. I've been there, you know, I've been there and I can help you understand what's really happening here. And I had a passion for that. And I think when you have a passion for something like that, that, you know, and it comes from that place, that's a really good start. And then, as I'm sure you probably experienced as well, you know, okay, yeah, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and some of them great, some not so good. And I enjoy doing this, but I want to be good at it. And now you're studying and you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I make this really good for my viewer, uh, listener? And, uh, and that was the situation for me. And, um, and then, um, I did my first documentary, I think, um, three years after I got in, after I retired and when I got into broadcasting and really enjoyed that experience as well. It was very educational for me. It was a great experience. And then being able to take this viewer on this journey through this subject and help them to get in depth into it was, uh, was really enjoyable. And yeah, then I got good at it and, yeah. and started winning awards as a, <laughs> as a, That's uh, natural as a for television you. commentator. So the podcast series you did, I think two years ago or so, Defiance with Audible, How'd you feel about that? How'd you enjoy it? What'd you feel about the impact of it? It was a it was an amazing experience. This was um, 2021 when we started this project, and um, it was in the the you know the wake of you know George Floyd and the whole social justice movement that started in the U.S. and started to get around to to the entire uh, globe. So Defiance um, is a look back at athletes and sports people who have used their position, their voice, their platform to try to bring about some social change in areas that they're passionate about. And so what we do with Defiance, it's a eight uh, episode uh, podcast series. And what we do is look at these stories and tell some stories that people have never heard of before. They've never heard of these athletes that actually have you know, made a tremendous impact. And then also tell the stories that a lot of people are familiar with, like Colin Kaepernick, for example, but from a different perspective and, and sort of really diving in deep. Because, you know, going back to Muhammad Ali and Jackie Robinson and um, Billie Jean King and um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, you know, those stories are amazing stories of people that, you know, um, have used their platform and, and made a, a, a great impact on society. And those stories are, are, are well known, but they were so long ago that a lot of people didn't really know all of the detail. So we go into that. And then the more recent stories, the Colin Kaepernick's, the, the women's WNBA team, um, you know, uh, really taking uh, the Breonna Taylor murder and highlighting that. And those stories have been recent and they have come at a time when it's just the headline that just continues to get repeated and there's and the, and the sort of talking points around it. So this takes people into, you know, in depth into the subject and to what happened. You take Kaepernick as a great example. There was a former Green Beret. I interviewed him for the, the series and he was very instrumental in Colin Kaepernick actually kneeling. And because Colin was first sitting on the bench, he, his perspective was, I'm not trying to make a statement, not trying to do anything special here. I just don't feel comfortable personally standing for this anthem, given what's happening. So he decided, I'm just going to take myself out and I'll go sit back here on the bench. Nate noticed it, got in touch with Colin. Here's a white guy, American, former Green Beret, has a meeting with him and says to Colin, I don't agree with what you're doing, but I understand why you're doing it. So why don't you do this? It's more respectful to kneel as opposed to going and sitting on the bench. And Colin said, makes sense. That makes sense. I don't want to be disrespectful. I'll kneel. And that's how he ended up kneeling. So when he started taking all of the flack for kneeling, Nate wanted to speak. Nobody wanted to talk to him because it didn't fit the narrative. (laughs) So a lot of people don't know that story, you know, and and it's amazing. Yeah. You know, let's stay here for a moment. I want you to, you have such a unique view of this. I want you to talk about the role of brands, companies, company leaders, in social, political, environmental change issues. It's a hot topic at can this year with the stuff going with Bud Light and Target and others. And these CMOs are in a tough spot. And often they're leaned on to help the company figure out where they take a voice and where they don't, when they stand up, when they don't. 
So I'd like you to talk about, you know, what's the counsel that you would give or are giving to how brands, CMOs, these are all people, should be handling their brand, their company in these times? Yeah. It's a tough, it's a tough position. It's a tough time. You know, it's tough for athletes as well who are trying to build a brand, who are trying to, you know, also at the same time trying to, you know, use this powerful tool that they have, this position that they have, this platform and voice that they have for the causes that they believe in. So I think that, you know, it starts for brands with, you're not going to be able to fake this. You have to be authentic. That's your best bet. If you fake it, people are going to find out. They're going to see through it. Somebody's going to see through it, and then it's going to explode, and it's going to just backfire on you. So you can't fake this. If you're going to try to, if you're going to get in the game, it has to be authentic, and you have to know that at this point, it is just a reality of the situation that some of the people out there, some of your customers, some of your potential customers, they are not going to agree with you. And they are going to say that. And you're going to have to listen to it. And you're going to have to let it pass or let it roll and or just go with what you believe. And but you have to be very, very solid in your position and what you believe. Because as soon as you start wavering, it's just going to snowball on you. There's no silver bullet for this. There, I, don't, I don't believe that there is any, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, a CMO. <laughs> and maybe there's one out there who can, you know, or someone out there who can consult, you know, that can tell you, hey, here's how you can do it. And you can get all of the things you want. I don't believe that exists. I don't believe you're going to be able to get all of the things you want. I don't believe you're going to be able to take a position. I don't believe you're going to be able to do anything, you know, about what's happening in the world and have your brand aligned with it and not be subject to some backlash, subject to some criticism, because that's the world we live in right now. Yeah. Yeah. Are there this being authentic, staying with it, not faking it? Hey, your employees are going to see through it immediately, which is, I think, ends up being toxic. Are there companies, people that you admire and how they are managing their business in the world today? That's a good question. I think right now it's hard to, I mean, who is it? North Face, I believe. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's probably everybody's example because that's an outlier and nobody's doing yeah. <laughs> what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's, that takes a lot, you know. But I think, look, I think we have to be realistic too. They're in a different situation than a publicly traded company. Right. You know, that's a very different situation. So, you know, when you think about publicly traded companies that have a lot of different interests that they have to serve by the very nature of that organization being what it is, you know, that's hard, you know, and and so, you know, I can't say that there's someone that I admire out there right now, you know, but I can say that, you know, you need to just sort of, you know, do what you need to do right now, you know, until you figure it out, you know, and 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 there are companies, look, there are companies that are doing what they feel they can right now, mm -hmm. and that's admirable, and it may not be being extremely vocal or taking a a side. But right now, if that's what do that rather than being, you know, hypocritical or slapping your name on something to say, hey, look at us. We're doing this for social justice or we're, you know, doing this for equity and inclusion or diversity. You know, we're doing these things because, you know, we slapped our name on this. Don't do that. Don't do that. It doesn't work. You know, just if you if you if you're committed to it, try to figure it out. Or And if you're going to support something, then say, hey, this is what we're doing right now. Don't go out there putting out press releases about it and trying to, you know, you know, sort of, you know, position yourself as if, you know, you're changing the world. Yeah. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. 
you know, there are a lot of CMOs who listen to this. They have partnerships with celebrities, athletes, all sorts of affiliations. As you decided and decide to this day on who you align with in terms of partnerships and companies and brands, what's important to you? How do you make those choices? So my, the way that I do it and, and, you know, is I am true to myself and authentic in what I'm, you know, who I am, what I represent. But at the same time, also, what's important to me? So what's important to me right now is equality, equal opportunity, diversity, you know, institutional racism in America, dismantling that system so that there is equal access and opportunity for everyone, women, minorities, black people. And that is, that is, the, that is my thing. You know, you, you hear people say, you know, I got one shit to give. That's my one. Mm-hmm. That's it. People, the main thing, the main thing. Someone That's said it. that. You yeah. know, I care about the environment. I care about the LGBTQ community. I care about all of those things. But the one that I am focused most on is that one. There, I have friends. You know, my wife, it's a different issue. And I respect that. And I would expect people to expect mine. But don't sort of infer that because I am, that's, that because that's my issue, that all of the issues, you know, are my issue. So if I choose to work with a company, that's what I'm focused on most. Now, that company might have a horrible record with the environment, <laughs> you know, and yeah, you know, it's not that I don't care. I wish they didn't, but that's not what I'm focused on right now. So I, I make my decisions based on associating myself with companies that, you know, share my values. If, you know, there's a company that, you know, let's stay with that, you know, they're not great on the environment. If they are deliberately doing something that is absolutely just, you know, unforgivable, I can't align with that because it's just not my thing. Mm-hmm. But this whole idea that, you know, I'm, I'm still waiting to meet that person who is just 100% on all of the issues. Right, right. <laughs> you know, they're 100% good. All, yeah. There's 100% clean on just, all yeah. of the issues. I'm waiting because this is it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. And you have to deal with that when you align yourself with the company and you know that, you know, well, they're not doing the best on this, I'm, you know, this issue. I wish they could do, I wish they'd do better. It's hard, you know. What's a, in your mind, what's the best partnership you've had in your life with a brand? I mean, I have to say Nike. It's been 20, 26 years. I've been with Nike for 26 years. I started with Nike. I was wearing their, their stuff when I was in college. And then I signed with them immediately after when I started my professional career. I had four different contracts with them throughout my professional career. Continued every time, you know, it was it got better and better. You know, the you know the gold shoes came as a result of me not really liking the shoes that they were making. So they had a shoe that was out of production. It had been out of production for a while that I really liked. I wore in college, and so I had them save all of the the plates for that shoe. So it's with spikes. It's a plate that kind of mm-hmm. makes the bottom mm-hmm. of the shoe. Had them save. I was like, all of the size elevens. Save those for me. So they did, and I was like, "Cause that's what I'm gonna wear." Cause I'm not. They were then they were moving their their footwear on, and they were doing really well. But I didn't like it, and they came to me and said, "We need to just make you what you want, you know. We'll make you what you want, you know. So let's let's make you. We're gonna put a team on it, you know. If you feel like the footwear is limiting you, because that was what I felt. That footwear that they were making, I felt like if I wear it, it's not allowing me to be as fast as I can mm-hmm. be." slowing me down <laughs> that was yeah. not their objective yeah you know with their footwear so so they came to me and said hey let's make you what you want we worked on that for two years and ended up with a gold shoe we didn't work on the color for two years that took me literally five seconds to determine the color <laughs> so tell me about that what was behind the color well the final prototype um was presented to me and uh, we had already been working with uh with 3m they had been working on uh, developing some really uh, innovative materials because what I was asking for was not easy to do. I wanted it to be extremely lightweight, and it ended up being the lightest shoe ever made footwear um, for a sport. And uh, but I needed it to be extremely stable 
as I'm going around the current turn because I'm putting a lot of torque on the on the shoe. So what I was asking for was not easy. So the final prototype was always going to look amazing and look like nothing that had ever been made before. And it did. It was amazing. It looked like a mirror yeah. when you held it up. It looked like a mirror. Not gold, just a mirror. So no color, just like a mirror. It reflected whatever, you know, was 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 in front of it. And it was. I thought it was amazing. I was like, this is going to be crazy, right? So my coach was right there and he said, I don't like it. And I said, <laughs> coach, why don't you like it? He says, well, I like it here. It looks really cool. He's like, yeah, you're right. He's like, but from the stands, it's just going to look like a silver or gray shoe. And as soon as he said that, I turned to Toby Hatfield, my shoe designer at Nike, and I said, Toby, can you make this in gold? And he said, I think we can. And But I could tell just the look in his eyes and the entire shoe team, the design team, and my coach was all like, oh, my God. <laughs> He's really going to wear gold shoes. And um, so that's how it that's this how is it, before you had won a gold. This was 1996 before the, the before the Olympic the Olympic Games. Yeah. 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 So, so, yeah, that's how it became gold. Fantastic story. You were at the top of your sport for a long time. The people listening to this show, the average tenure of a CMO is about two and a half years. They all want to be at the top of their game for a long time and to thrive and develop their potential. So I know it's world-class athletics versus being a chief marketing officer, but the principles behind you staying at top of your game for so mm -hmm. long, you know, what would be your counsel to the CMOs listening about longevity and performance and staying at the top of their game? Yeah. I mean, so, I wonder if there's a difference between staying at the top of your game and staying, you know, in, in tenure. Because mm -hmm. if you're if you stay somewhere two years, you know, but you're, because you're moving to somewhere else, yeah, you know, sure, you yeah. know, you may still be at the yeah. top of your but game, but you're in a different right? environment. But yeah. if you yeah. want to stay at the top of your game, you know, which could mean that you keep moving to somewhere, yeah, sure, bigger, better, yeah, you know, if you want to stay at the top of your game, that we're talking about now, just consistency, right? And that is one of the things that I'm most proud of. So. When when I look back on my career, you know, and people ask, you know, are you more proud of the, the the world records or the the medals? I'm most proud of the consistency that I was able to go to every championship, every world championship, every Olympic game, and deliver my best performance on the day when it counts. And so that's why there are only gold medals on my on my resume. Um, and that comes from, you know, um, understanding how to get the best from yourself. If you can figure that out early, then you can start to create habits around that that you can then duplicate. And that gives you an amazing platform to build on. So over the years, by the time I was at the end of my career, I'm still learning and improving on this platform, which is by that time, the platform that I have developed for myself in terms of how I approach competitions, how I actually get myself mentally and emotionally ready to go in there and deliver in that moment. You know, it's incredible. And I'm still building on it. So if you can establish that, it's, it's kind of like a, a snowball effect. You know, it's kind of, you know, you, the more you pick up and you keep adding to it, the better and better and bigger it becomes. And that's how you are then able to develop the type of consistency that allows you to be, yeah, at your best and at your best for a very long time. But you have to know what drives you. It's hard. You know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, as an athlete in, in any position, there's a lot of sacrifice, you know, required. And you have to figure out, you know, how to balance that and how you are able to bounce back from the the challenges that come, the unexpected that come, you know, a catastrophic injury and you got to come overcome that. Maybe you get let go, you know from your job, you know, and yep. as, as CMO and, you know, how do you bounce back from that mm -hmm. and still, you know, continue to be the best. What was the most challenging part of your ritual on staying consistent? Was it the physical training, the diet, the sleep? The, you know, what was, okay, I guess it's all of it. Yeah. I think, I think the most challenging part, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting. I have to look back on it now that I'm removed from it to know that it was challenging because in the moment it didn't seem challenging. I wrote a book uh, back in 2012 where it's called Gold Rush. And I interviewed all of these different Olympic champions, not just Olympic champions, but people who had won multiple Olympic champions, 
Usain Bolt, Michael Phelps, Jackie Joyner, Kersey, people like that. And I was talking to Daley Thompson, two-time Olympic decathlon champion, 84 and 88. And I've known Daley for years, and we were talking, and I was like, you know, we're talking about sacrifice. Like, you know, oh, yeah, everybody always talks about athletes. You know how much sacrifice, you know, you have to make. And, and uh, I said, you know, do you, ever, do you feel like you, you ever had to sacrifice? And he said, no. And I was like, me either. It's like, you know, I don't get it. I never felt like I really had any sacrifice. I had a great life, you know, when I was competing. And then the more we kept talking about it, the more we realized that that was a major sacrifice, you know, missing vacations and boys' trips to Vegas and, you know, and, you know, holidays. You know, I mean, it was like, I, I remember, you know, Christmas fell on a Thursday. I train on Thursday. It's not Christmas, it's Thursday, you know. And I, I'll get to the family, you know, later in the day, but I missed the morning. You know, because I was out training, you know, we realized that, but it didn't feel like a sacrifice because it was what I wanted. It's what I wanted to be doing. You gave me, I had the choice and the choice wasn't hard. So it wasn't, it wasn't difficult because it was what I wanted to do. It was what I chose. Yeah. What's your greatest memory of your years competing? Is it an obvious one or a not obvious one? You know, it's hard to just pick out one. I was, you know... During the 15 years that I competed at an elite level, um, it spanned, you know, four years at Baylor University, competing at an elite level, showing the potential to be one of the best ever, but constantly injured, but then discovering the problem is me. You know, I'm committed to most of the things that I need to do to be the best, but not these other things over here. And then once I discovered that and committed to those, Next thing you know, I'm first person in the world, ranked number one in the world in the 200 and 400 meters, mm-hmm. you know. And then, of course, once I started my Olympic professional career, you know, being able to, I was very fortunate to have an Olympic Games take place in my country during my career. I mean, my career was, my professional and Olympic career was 10 years. 1996, the Olympics were in Atlanta. It's been, what's that? How many years? 96 to, you know, however many years that is. A couple decades. 28, yeah. That's 28 years. There hasn't been an Olympics back. There have been two generations, if not three generations of athletes that have been great. And they won Olympic gold medals, but they had to do it somewhere else. So that just shows you how fortunate I was with the timing that it actually took place. You know, so that was, that was amazing. So all of those things, you know, it's, it's everything. Now, this will be interesting advice for our listeners. You're in great shape now. And so you're a world-class athlete. You're still in great shape. What's your routine now? How do you do it? Is it a matter of priorities or doing what you enjoy? Or You know, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not yeah, easy. I agree because with Because I think people think that when you've been an athlete that you, always gonna, you, you just want to always train and you're always going to want to train. There's a lot of examples out there that shows that that's <laughs> true, right? Yeah. Right? Because, I mean, look, you know, I'm training now, not like I was training when I was an athlete, but when I finished, you know, training, there's no gold medals. You know, that was my motivation at one point. And nobody's giving me a gold medal. Nobody's clapping when I finish a hike, you know. Nobody's there, you know, applauding me. So where's my motivation now, you know? So it took some time for me to – I did it after I retired. I still, you know – kept myself in good shape, but um, it took some time for me to find my new motivation with it. I, I just did it because I knew this is what I need to do, and I, I'm, maybe it's the vanity. I want to look good, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just stayed with it. But now I, you know, I have my motivation, but it's, uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough when you travel a lot, um, but, no, I, you know, it became a, it's a lifestyle for me, so it's not, it's not that hard. You know, I figured out how. I've been doing it for so long now. I figured out how to incorporate, you know, a constant level of physical activity into my into my life on a daily and weekly basis. I enjoy it. It serves a lot of purposes for me now. Diet is not hard for me. You know, I, I love food. Um, I love wine. I love scotch. I do not. Um, and you look great. <laughs> I don't uh, I don't refrain much at all <laughs> from eating what I want and drinking what I want. But I do you know make sure that you know balance has always just been balance is a part of my lifestyle. So the things that people want to do, if you, you know, if you, you want to lose weight, you want to maintain a certain weight, getting on some sort of regimen 
is just a start. Ultimately, in order for it to stick, it has to become part of your life. It has to become a lifestyle. And that is, first, it's getting consistent. And then once you get there consistently, okay, I'm consistently working out. If it's still a struggle, then the next level you have to get to is where now can I make it part of my lifestyle, where it's just what I do. Yeah, I love that. Do you still run? I don't run anymore. I hike a lot. I live in Malibu, got great, great, yeah, great trails. Sure but wherever I sort of um, am, I, I, I was in Zurich the other day and I was um, able to get into the mountains, go for a yeah, beautiful hike. Hiking. Yeah, I love hiking. So, yeah. and getting the gym. I'm in the gym a lot. I have sure. a gym at my house and I just am in there a lot. Yeah. yeah. All right. I want to end with a creative brief and a couple of questions just to get a few more insights into you, Michael. How did being the youngest of five children affect your competitive spirit? So, yeah, I'm the youngest of five, but at the same time, I'm four years, five years removed from the next one closest to me. They're all a year apart and then me. I'm, I'm five years removed. So my parents uh, were both only children, so they did, they, they wanted a lot of kids, but they still haven't been able to explain that five-year gap to my <laughs> satisfaction. So when we were growing up, my, my, we were all outside all of the time. I grew up in Dallas, and you know this was in the 70s when kids were always outside. Mm-hmm. So my siblings were always outside, and everybody was playing sports. And so my siblings, they did not care that I was younger. They're like, you know, you're on a team. You got to play up. You got you to gotta play, you know? And so I was playing with kids that were much older than me. And I, I didn't even think about that. Well, I'm younger, you know, so I was always just, yeah. What was your favorite sport as a kid? When I was, I mean, I played soccer, I played baseball, I played basketball, football, American football, and track. And I did all of those um, all of the time. And I just loved it. It didn't matter. I always loved running. But then when I got to sort of middle school, then it was, I, I knew then that, I don't want to do anything else but track. I still played football mm-hmm. just because I grew up in Texas and mm-hmm. it's kind of unavoidable. Sure. Yep. Didn't like it. but And then by the time I was in high school, it was just track. When did you realize that you had the potential to be an elite, elite athlete? Was there a, a meet, a person, yeah. a moment? Yeah. It was relatively late for me when I realized that I had the potential. I enjoyed the sport from the very beginning and, and I would dream about it. There's a difference between dreaming about it and then believing and realizing that I actually have the potential. And I think people conflate that a lot. You ask mm-hmm. most athletes, so when did you realize, like, oh, I knew. I knew when I was in high school. Maybe they did, you know. But for me, I needed proof. And the proof for me was when I started running times that were consistent with the world-class athletes. And then there was one race where... It's my first year at Baylor, and I ended up in a race with um, with a guy who had been ranked number one in the world in the 200 meters the year prior. And I finished second to him, and I would have beaten him. And I realized that, you know, that was not anywhere close to my best race. The execution was really garbage, but I ran a really fast time. And so, and, and from there I knew, you know, um, I knew I knew what I had sort of thought I might know <laughs> before that, then I knew. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young boy in Texas? Dallas Cowboys. Dallas Cowboys. How growing early up, was that? Growing up really in early? the 70s. Yeah, growing up in the 70s, the silver helmet with the star mm-hmm. was a brand that was just, it was, my, my dad was a big Dallas Cowboys fan. I had Dallas Cowboys pajamas. I had a Dallas Cowboys helmet, which my dad used to make me wear around the house because I would be running everywhere and I'd bang myself <laughs> in the head and have a big knot. So my dad starts telling me to put the helmet on. Yeah, I just, I, I, I remember the Dallas Cowboys as a brand, not me, obviously as a team, yeah. but I remember yeah. just seeing that. I knew what it meant. And you would see it around Dallas on, you know, billboards and different businesses that were sponsors of mm-hmm. the Cowboys. You would see it everywhere. Still a fan? Suffering. Suffering. <laughs> suffering. <laughs> suffering. Yeah, suffering. But, but look, Probably one of the best marketers, Jerry oh, Jones, yeah. oh, you know, sure. that mean people, I talk to people because of my travels around Europe and spending so much time. I talk to people and they believe the Dallas Cowboys won a Super Bowl recently. And we haven't won a Super Bowl <laughs> since the 90s. Power of the brand. Power of the brand. Yeah. Right. They yeah. believe, oh, those are, those are winners. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Not, not, not recently. Who's been the most inspiring person in your life? It's hard to say the most inspiring. I'm going to, if I can. Rephrase it. Sure. Yeah. The, the most, the, the most, uh, impactful person in my life was my dad. My dad was, um, growing up, my dad, my dad was a truck driver. We didn't have 
a lot. But my dad made sure that not only we had all of the things that we needed, we didn't have much of what we wanted. That was, that was a whole nother world, <laughs> uh, except for the Cowboys pajamas that I wanted. He made sure I got those. But we had all of the things that we needed. And, you know, there were, there were always problems when you're poor. Being poor is hard. And I heard somebody say the other day, which is very true, and expensive. <laughs> and, um, and that was us, you know. And so there's always problems to solve. And my dad always felt like he was he never frazzled, never just completely unflappable. I'll figure it out. And he always figured it out. And I always wanted to be like that. And he was there, you know, as that role model for me growing up that, you know, this is how you solve problems. This is how you solve problems. This is how you, you know, sort of, even as a man with five kids, you know, and, you know, as a truck driver and without a lot of money, you know, he was able to figure out, you know, how, how do I, how do I get the problem solved and raise this family and, um, and not be, not be subject to my environment in this situation, but to be able to take as much control of it as I possibly can. I saw that and, and it shaped a lot of how I approach life. That's love and it's also creativity. Yeah. Really, that attitude. Yeah. Uh, oh, I well, can figure it out. I can tell you too, my dad was very creative with some of the stuff he put together that. <laughs> 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 yep. Michael, this has been a treat. Thank you. Yeah. Thank absolutely. you so much for yeah. spending time with us. It's full of lessons, inspiration, and, and again, a great honor to be in the room with you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That was my amazing conversation with Michael Johnson. There were lots of takeaways from this one, but here's three to focus on for aspiring CMOs. The first one is consistency is the key to excellence. When we asked Michael about how he stayed atop, at the top of his game for so many years, at the top of his sport, really, it was all about consistency in his preparation, consistency in what he did, consistency in how he trained. Consistency is a key driver of excellence. Second takeaway, how creativity can come from a strong partnership. We talked about Michael's 26-year relationship with Nike, the evolution of the gold shoe, and how that idea of gold came out, how the shoe design evolved. It was because of Michael's input and Nike's willingness to make the shoe that Michael wanted and needed. Third takeaway, we talked about brands getting involved in many, many of the issues in the world today. Michael's advice, don't fake it, be authentic, Get involved in something that you really care about and you're willing to, and you are willing to follow through on. It should be something that's natural for your organization and natural for your brand's equity and history. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, Leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.